Hey, it's Mark Shifley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric Podcast. Hey there, Winnipeg Jets fans. Welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast, episode 60. My name is AJ, and let's get back into it a bit here. We've been off for a bit, and now it's time to uh, get some of the work done that we laid the ground laid the groundwork for earlier. So, got a couple interviews coming up. I should mention that the Max Geezy one um, is going to be delayed. Uh, met him at Dev Camp. We talked on the phone. Had a great chat. Um, it was approved to do it, but now it's sort of been taken back just to uh, sort some things out. So hopefully we could revisit that one and do it in the future. But Max is great, and uh, I think if and whenever we get to do that interview, you all will really really enjoy it. So um, also doing one with Jake Heisinger coming up. He is uh, involved with the Winnipeg Ice, so we're going to be talking about them, their program, and how that's going to look, them coming to the city. Also, Blake Spiller, who is uh, the coach of the Portage Terriers, we're going to be doing something, and also Leah Hextall is going to be talking about the women's game. I will mention, I did try and get a hold of uh, Dale Howardchuck, and they kind of blew me off, so that's unfortunate. So if any of you have a connection with Dale Howardchuck that's a bit more direct than his agent, um, see if you could, uh, you know, DM us and, and let us know. And also Sean Burke, um, former NHL goalie, is uh, supposed to come on. Um, he's been a little bit quiet lately, but uh, yeah, we, we've been kind of chatting back and forth. So hopefully we get that one done before the, the season starts. So there's a couple interviews to look forward to, plus uh, chatted with Mike the other day, and uh, he's going to organize something to do another roundtable with uh, himself and some of the other people involved with the podcast. So he's got lots of different ideas. Anyhow, uh, this episode, though, is uh, myself interviewing Sean Tierney at Charting Hockey on uh, the Twitter machine. Uh, I'm sure you're, if you've ever seen any kind of visualization for hockey, kind of trying to explain analytics or stats or even salaries and lineup tools, uh, he does a lot of great work, a lot of really interesting visualizations. So we talk a lot about that and we get into some other interesting topics, uh, whether it's uh, just that community or prospects or coaching evaluations and the Jets, obviously. So a lot of really good stuff. I mean, I'm a rambling fool, uh, but Sean uh, and, and I tried to have some, some good questions and he just took anything I threw at him, whether it was good quality or not, uh, and uh, turned it into something really good. He had a lot of really neat things to say and uh, is really, really great about sharing it. So I think you'll enjoy this. So anyhow, let's get to the interview with Sean Tierney. Enjoy. Uh, first question I have for you is, how did you get started into doing all these visualizations and, and, and whatnot following uh, hockey? Well, the sort of uh, medium to longish version, I guess, of the story is uh, my father is always a big hockey fan, and he has always run a card shop, a hockey card shop. So I spent, you know, sort of numerous, innumerable hours, you know, sorting hockey cards and and to do that, the best way is to look at the back. And when you're stuck on the back of hockey cards, you wind up, you know, sort of inadvertently getting stuck in the world of stats and getting to know players by are they goal scorers, do they get assists, and all that sort of thing. And so for me, you know, the the interest kind of started really, really early. That you know, I loved watching hockey, but I really was interested in the numbers that go into how players produce and and which players are you know really impactful, which ones aren't. And so as that sort of went along, um, I became just sort of interested in following along on Twitter with some of the people who were maybe some of the first to the scene in terms of doing data viz and making visuals that almost had that kind of hockey card in a way feel to them. Uh, Dominic Gallimini, who's the creator of the original Hero Charts, 
uh, was sort of my big inspiration, both to dig into Tableau, which he was using at the time and, and wasn't out there, uh, you know, expansively when he was using it. And then just the idea of making these sort of uh, one singular catch-all pictures that can kind of sum up a player and give you uh, some talking points in a sense, a starting point of understanding how that player contributes. And so for me, you know, it's kind of this story that, that winds way back in time for me and uh, has sort of found a way of expressing itself now as data is something that kind of is, is a way that the world's understanding data in all sorts of spheres. And we see it in sports now too. And, and for me, it's just a process of trying to make sure that I'm current with the tools that are out there, making sure, you know, Tableau has been a big one for me, but learning other tools that are out there too. And then uh, just trying to make sure that anybody else that's interested in the way I am, that if I can be a resource for people that are looking to get into it, that I make myself available in that way too. Right. So then uh, for you, was this more like to make sense of this stuff a little bit more or was it uh, you had such an interest that you just really want to share it with other people like you're trying to trying to teach? I believe uh, that's your background, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, I was just curious how much of it was to, to make it even make more sense for you or how much was you, you wanted to share what you knew with the world? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, some sort of combination of the two. And like you sort of alluded to, uh, my day job is as a teacher. And so, uh, you know, part of the, the perks of that sort of a job is during the summertime, you've got time to uh, explore some other things that you might be interested uh, while you're off. And so I had actually started writing for a blog, and, and I still think of this sometimes as kind of the, uh, the origin story for me anyway. Uh, I was writing a blog about David Booth, who had just joined the Toronto Maple Leafs, and trying to understand was this, you know, actually a good move for the Leafs or was it not? And when I did that, you know, it sort of led to Extra Skater, which was publishing good stats at the time. And I thought, you know, I want to write a piece about this and talk about whether or not this is a good move. But I don't want it to be just a wall of text because I'm used to reading, you know, uh, lots of articles where text is the primary thing. And I want something to make this this stand out. And, and that's when I went down looking, you know, how do I make a visual for myself, something that I can add into a blog post and have it pop and maybe communicate some understanding and, and just be, you know, a visual and a lot of the time uh, you know words can do a lot of the work for you but uh, providing that visual is a key part in teaching and, and it you know it's wound up being a key part in understanding huge amounts of data as well so yeah it's kind of a balance between you know uh, a way for me to explore just because I'm interested myself but I think it's a really clear tool for communication too and anytime you can cut a thousand words down into a single picture you got to take those opportunities with all the the wealth of data that we have available it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I notice more and more now, uh, even in people doing sports writing, that they're starting to use more visualizations, including uh, stuff that you do and Mike McCurdy does and, and whatnot. So it's almost a lot of people accuse the analytics community of just being a bunch of spreadsheet nerds. Yet at the same time, there's a lot of expansion on on the ideas that are in the visualizations. They're just sort of proving what the words are words are saying. So it feels like it's making the communication that much clearer is have you, have you found that uh too like where there's been that crossover where people haven't really been uh ex accepting of you know visualizations and spreadsheets and analytics and whatnot but now that there's so many more people kind of adding to it and communicating feels like uh something that everybody can get into now yeah definitely it's a switch that's happened within the past couple of years probably where it's really picked up speed I think, you know, without um, singling out a singular publication too much, I think in some ways the athletic has been really interesting uh, in terms of the hockey sphere, at least, 
where, uh, you know, the athletic, everyone's got the story of what the reason I'm joining the athletic, um, <laughs> and, and the athletics really soaked up a lot of the best hockey writers that there are in North America right now. Uh, and it seems like part of the mandate with the athletic is to have articles that really do pop and, and to have articles that aren't the standard thing that you would expect to see you know, from a old school sort of newspaper style of article where the idea should be that you're offering, if you're going to, you know, have a subscription based service, um, that you should offer something more to readers that they should expect more. And so, you know, without, you know, standing here stumping too much for the athletic, I think that in, in broad sort of strokes, the industry has moved to that way where you want a beat writer who can tell you what the coach said post game. You want a beat writer who can say, you know, this is what Josh Morrissey had to say after the game about the defensive zone breakdown. But you really want the beat writer to be able to say, and here's a chart showing that normally uh, this is a play that gets broken up at the blue line and it didn't happen this time. And the Viz is a great way to, you know, back up that it's not just a beat writer waxing poetic about what they think. You know, there's information behind it. This is an expert person who's got the quotes, too. And yeah. so, you know, I think in general now we're seeing not only is it accepted that you should have a visual and you should have that kind of statistical backing for what you're saying, but it's really becoming the expectation that there's, you know, a, a visual hook in your piece to make sure, you know, for the new generation of readers that are coming in that there's all the different types of media, the multimedia experience is available. And, and if you're going to be a subscription-based service, the way lots of places are going, you want that kind of premium element in your piece. And, and you know, Viz can be part of that story. Right. Now, just kind of getting away from the visualization, but just the analytics in general, do you think that um, the reason we're hearing so much about it specifically in hockey is that um, hockey's always been such a slow-moving, slow-progressing kind of sport, and people that are drawn to analytics and, and the math side of thing have found it to be like an untapped market that really uh, there's lots of um, inefficiency throughout it in, in many angles. Uh, and there's just some opportunity to really make some headway where some of the other sports have been a bit more progressive and maybe not so uh, luck-based where you're trying to find advantages in the, the minutia of, of the sport. So do you think it's uh, like specifically a hockey thing that's really drawn people to it uh, more recently? Um, more so than the other sports. I feel like I'm hearing about all the time. Obviously, this podcast is about the Jets and hockey, but uh, yeah, it feels like that's sort of the trend. The only place I'm really hearing about it. Everywhere else, it's either established or kind of normalized. Yeah, well, I, I think you're definitely uh, you're onto something with that. Baseball is the you know sort of the oldest sport in North America in, in some ways, and and it's always had that very clear tie to its statistics, and and because of the pace of the game. You know, it's always been an easier game to write down every bit of information that's happened. And so, you know, you can look at box scores going back to the you know early 1900s and and they're complete. The, the data process there has always it's always lended itself to that process in a way that, you know, some other sports haven't. Uh, but then, you know, basketball is a sport that kind of adopted um, advanced stats to the point where you can expect to go to NBA.com and really get, you know, some detailed beyond just the points scored and rebounds collected stats and, and football's had kind of that same revolution where they've got tracking data to some extent. And, and so in some ways, like you're saying, hockey was kind of the holdout, both because maybe it's the least of the major sports in North America, you know, huge in Canada, but not as big in the United States where some of this innovation has occurred. 
And then, you know, just the, the nature of the sport really resists that kind of careful counting in some ways too. When you've got that many people in such a small pay, uh, in such a small space moving at the speed that they do, and then having kind of a low event uh, in a way kind of sport where, you know, a, a three goal game can be enough to win it in hockey. Uh, it just sort of the very nature of it is difficult to quantify. And because it's kind of difficult to quantify, it almost is like hockey's been able to tell a story that there's something kind of mystic about this sport and, and you can't really count it. There's something going on that's magical about this and the speed. And so, you know, maybe that I think you're probably on to something that for, you know, a variety of different historical reasons, hockey was the last frontier for stats to really take hold, but it's on now. And, and you know, all sorts of smart analysts are being hired up by teams and, you know, you get a site like Hockey Graphs and, you know, half the people are now alumni because they're working at the top levels of organizations. And then, you know, with the advent of tracking data, whatever that's going to look like next year being supported by the league, the revolution is now on in sort of full swing. And that eye test versus analytics war, that kind of wage for a couple of years on Twitter, you know, it's over. It's over now. It's not it's not something that's really at the fore. So hockey was maybe the last one in on this to the level it's at, but we're there now. And now it's just a matter of really clearing some space and figuring out, you know, which stuff that we can count actually matters and which stuff doesn't. I love that you mentioned that uh, people have talked about hockey being sort of magical. I've, I've felt that way about uh, many narratives that come up in hockey. Uh, one that I could think of uh, most recently, I won't talk too much, but uh, was uh, when guys get put in the press box, like that was some sort of cure-all, but uh, I don't know if anybody's ever measured somebody's you know stats before and after uh, a press box sitting and, and really evaluated like that was the, the catalyst that actually made them better, yet people talk about it like it is some curing factor, and it's it's just kind of weird voodoo right so it's uh i like that you you kind of uh, alluded to that because i've definitely noticed that and it's, it's a little bit annoying to hear those things because people aren't really arguing with facts it's more about uh, other stuff but anyhow i'm going to move on to talking a bit more about the visualizations um this is sort of a combined question between uh one of our contributors katie and myself but um she said in in your opinion what makes a good uh an effective visualization what what makes it um really stand out as being something that can be uh effective and uh yeah, and, and uh, I guess tell the best story. Sure. So um, just as a really quick aside to lead into this, uh, Megan Hall, who does a lot of great hockey work, and she's sort of been specifically focused on uh, power play stuff and goalie pulling stats over the past couple of months. Uh, she and I are collaborating on a, you know, sort of a new thing that's happening through medium.com where we're talking about sort of data viz. Um data is generally in sports rather than say hockey specific and so one of the things we're actually thinking about right now taps right into the question which is what makes for a good viz uh and for me there's kind of a couple of of principles that i try to adhere to all the time and i don't get there all the time you know it's it's something that um you know i work with all the time too for me i think the the first thing is there has to be a clear picture there has to be a clear story told with the picture and so for me, I want um, the viz to be a bridge in for people who maybe don't totally get or don't have the time to get invested in the stats the way maybe somebody else does. And so, for example, um, I publish my charts daily during the season, updating things like team shot rates, you know, Corsi for, Corsi against, and, and that sort of thing. And when you look at those charts, I think the first key has to be 
even somebody who's not plugged into the advanced stats world should be able to look at it and say, okay, I get it. Like, you're calling the Winnipeg Jets bad, even though they've won three of the last four games. Or you're calling the Carolina Hurricanes excellent, even though they never score a goal and they're brutal. Or, or you're saying the St. Louis Blues look like they're really controlling quality shots, but I know they're last in the NHL, what's going on? There should be a way for anyone to get bridged into the conversation within, you know, five to ten seconds of taking a look. And I think if you look at a viz and there's too much going on and it's busy, you turn a viewer off, even a, a really um, sort of plugged-in viewer, and then you've defeated the whole purpose. So for me, it's that kind of clarity of uh, sort of first look. The second thing for me, and the reason that I've uh, really been sort of connected to Tableau over the past couple of years, is I think that there's sort of a demand or an expectation that somebody who's bothered to check in on advanced stats should have the opportunity to dig through it for themselves. And so, um, you know, anybody who's listening to your podcast, if you wind up, you know, traveling over to my Tableau page uh, after listening to the episode, all of my viz contain filters where uh, any user can interact in a variety of ways. And so you can click on a logo. And when you do that, the player's name comes up and you get some hover details about this person. You can click on a team logo on the side and the view filters for just your team so that you can see some labels pop up or you choose from a drop down menu and you can go back one year, back two years or whatever. And I think the expectation is becoming more and more, um, you know, thanks for the nice picture, but I want to go look for myself. And I think that um, part of the, the role of somebody who wants to be involved in hockey stats or biz or this kind of a, a lifestyle with it is the expectation that you should be providing ways for people to dig deeper if they want to. And Tableau just sort of blows away many of the other options because it's not static. It's meant to be interactive. And in some ways for me, it's been the biggest challenge because websites um, still lag behind a little bit in their ability to handle interactive charts in this way where users come to them and then use them in all sorts of maybe unexpected or unpredictable ways. And so I sort of remain just housed on my Tableau site for now, because when you go there, the, the visas work the way that I want them to. But the idea should be, you know, that first instance is you look at it quick, and you can understand what's happening. And then the second option is for people who want more, the ability should be there to drill down for themselves and, and look for more than, than what's obvious on first look. Right. So is that something that's uh, evolved for you over time? Like, I mean, obviously you're coming up with new things and you talked about some uh, upcoming things you're going to be doing. Um, but like that evolution of trying to make it acceptable or was it always just that was always a goal and you just needed to to learn the program well enough to do do it like these these uh, ideas have been percolating for a long time in your head and now you're just finally able to get them out in the way that you like or has there been like a big evolution where you said this is the most important thing I'm going to do that and then all of a sudden just kind of realize no this and this and sort of add some some more layers onto it um, what, what's that process been like? Sorry, yeah, so uh, totally 100% evolution for me as I've worked with it. And so one of the um, distinct disadvantages in some ways uh, to the Tableau site is anytime I've uploaded things since I started, um, it's really difficult to kind of clear your profile off and keep it clean. And so in a way, sometimes I'm forced to just reckon with my own past, which is I have over 2,000 uh, visits on my page and it's 
kind of just, you know, you can scroll back several years and see some of the first things that I published and, you know, they're, they're cluttery. They're not easy to understand on first look. They're not as interactive as I would have liked. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of forced in some ways to look at my own learning process over time, just, you know, publicly in that way. And, you know, I, I've thought sometimes about going through and clearing off, you know, many of these old viz that they're not updated anymore and they don't represent the kind of work that I do. And, and they're just not, they're not useful in a particular way anymore. But at the same time, I do kind of like the, uh, without being too theoretical or too, uh, whatever, highfalutin, I kind of like the idea that uh, you can see the evolution here that, you know, I didn't come into making hockey viz as a fully formed uh hockey person at all it's something that's developed for me over time with a lot of help and a lot of inspiration you know looking around at others who do good work and i think you know uh, there's nothing special about my process with hockey it's the kind of thing that anybody with a lot of interest in the sport and kind of a willingness to learn can travel the same journey too and might take you 2000 visits to uh, get to where you want to be like it has for me and hopefully to go a lot faster for someone smarter than me but uh, it for the answer to the question is it's completely an evolution over time and and not an evolution that I feel like I'm at the end of at all it's it's going to continue to evolve as more data comes available and as I get smarter with this myself too right and now how do you focus on or like how do you pin down exactly what data you want to do because i mean there's lots of people that collect data i know i was reading something that you are looking at a visit you did uh today i believe with about uh defenseman salaries and you'd at the bottom and said that you'd uh, taken data from uh, manny elk so i'm just curious what that looks like I i'm not sure exactly what my question is but maybe you can kind of springboard off <laughs> this idea but uh, the difference between somebody who's like collecting data and 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 deciding you know what is important data for evaluating hockey players and and uh, teams versus somebody who's trying to create uh, to make that accessible to everybody else. I, I guess what does that look like for you? Like, do you consider yourself like an analytics person, or do you consider yourself uh, sort of a bridge for people to the the analytics? You use the, the term bridge, so I'm just kind of curious what that that looks like for you, and maybe how you see that in your role. I think depending on the day and depending on the role, it changes, and and so uh, sometimes for me, I'm purely in that kind of exploratory mode where um, a viz is published with some data, but the data itself either hasn't been proven to be something that's completely repeatable for the, say, the players that are involved. Uh, I'm thinking of something like uh, maybe defensemen uh, breaking up entries at the blue line using Corey Schneider's data, for example, where we can say something like uh, Jake Gardner's still a free agent uh, despite his reputation as being a really offensive uh, blue liner who makes mistakes, last year, even in his injury-shortened season, it showed that he was above average in pose possession exits, which is kind of his calling card, but he was also above average in breaking up entries at the blue line, which isn't something he gets a lot of credit for. And I published that, but there hasn't been a ton of research into whether or not this is a skill that we expect to see a defenseman repeat over time or if it's got some random going on to it so in that way the viz is kind of exploratory it's out there the data uh, is linked you can go check it out for yourself you can dig through and see how your players performed this season but we don't know maybe everything about it yet but then uh you know there's another phase that i like to operate in where 
Uh, we do know from good research, especially some of the people who still publish things through hockey graphs or, you know, Manny Elk, who you mentioned, has done, you know, some of the best research that we have publicly. Uh, there's some where we know, for example, to refer to the team shot chart again, we know that teams that control the share of shots over time will score more goals than their opponents. And so that's a chart where it's very much explanatory instead of exploratory, where the conclusions to draw from it are kind of set. We understand that, uh, you know, the Winnipeg Jets last season were routinely uh, lagging behind, giving up more uh, quality chances and giving up more shots overall than they were generating for. And that, that kind of, you know, suggested that there was uh, maybe something wrong in the system or that this wasn't a team that was meant to go deep in the playoffs. And so the explanation is there. It's not quite as exploratory. Um, and, and both phases, I think, are important. I do uh, some work privately for a, a team. And in that mode, it's almost never exploratory. They want answers and they want decisions. And so it, it's still uh, a lot of this work, but it's very conclusion-oriented. Right. A lot of the things that I do on Twitter are meant for people to dig in and explore. And there's kind of an onus on people that are using it to say, this is interesting. Now I'm going to dig more. This is my bridge into it. And now I'm going to take it further. And I see myself maybe as a bit of a, uh, like an igniter of a flame of interest rather than somebody who's got a, an ax to grind or a final point that I'm always trying to make. Right. Oh, that's, I, I love that. I love your wording there at the, at the end too. That's great. Yeah. Cause I guess uh, like for me, one thing that I'm always trying to do for myself and for others that I talk to is uh, try and understand what's a better way as a fan to watch the game. Now, I mean, everybody fans differently and some people don't really care about this stuff. They just want to, you know, going to hockey games is purely entertainment. But for those who want to sort of understand the game a bit more, I'm always looking for that. And, and I sort of to call back to your uh, talking about the hockey cards at the beginning. I mean, you're talking about the stats, uh, the, the fourth stat in after games played goals assists and points is plus minus and then right after that it's penalties and minutes and it's like it's still fascinating that those are still on hockey cards in some ways and there isn't some better stats yet people kind of refer to those things as some kind of value there so i guess um uh the in, in saying all that uh, I'm curious, what is a, a better way from, from your perspective for fans to watch the game? Like, what are some things to go? Uh, you even talked about Gardner and, and, and uh, trying to knock things off. I know this is a long-winded question, but uh, 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 zone exits or, or actually I can't remember exactly which uh, example you used. But even those, like when people watch a game, is that a good thing? I mean, if somebody bounces it off the glass from their own end and puts it right on somebody's stick on a breakaway and they could do that uh, 99 times out of 100, then bouncing it off the glass isn't a bad idea, right? So I I guess I'm always trying to do that. So what what's your take on how to watch the game a little bit better and find those valuable moments and, and just understand what's happening and, and what really gets you those those shots, like you mentioned shots being the main thing. Sorry, that was that was a very long-winded question. That's uh, that's my, my <laughs> calling card. I think it's a it's a, a great question and it kind of uh the way that it's asked really makes sense in a way how should we watch a hockey game uh in, in an informed way and i think you know the first and the only really responsible answer to give is um i'm very here for people watching hockey in whatever way they want and so uh you know maybe the the, the story i can give to go with this is I still watch hockey games with my father and, and his his best friend. And on a Saturday night, we'll still get together and we'll watch a game together 
you know, a, a couple times in a month and do this. And, you know, they're, they're older. And so they come from a different, a different time. Uh, the stats that were available were those ones you mentioned that are off the back of a hockey card. And so, you know, they're aware that I do some things that go a little deeper than those stats. And sometimes they'll see a play and it just kind of catches their eye and they ask a question. Mm-hmm. And in those opportunities, I think, you know, this is that maybe teachable moment or, or whatever, that moment of conversation where you can say, if they say something like, Jake Gardner just gave it away again, it's an opportunity to say, you know, defensemen who have the puck on their stick all the time have a lot of takeaways and a lot of giveaways because they have the puck so much. Right. And then that might lead to a debate where they can say, well, this is how I understood it and I can offer some things that might be interesting. And maybe it's a road that somebody, you know, would want to go down uh, that they haven't gone down before. Uh, for some people, you know, uh, there's sort of goalie or hockey goalie Twitter, and that's almost its own entity in a way where the stats that we have for goalies aren't quite as rich. And the people who know about hockey goaltending, you know, really know their stuff. And so maybe for someone who's watching a game, you're really honed in on goaltending and there's kind of a t- technique component to it. And then you wonder, you know, uh, they had 30 saves, but it was an Andre Vasilevsky kind of night where all those 30 saves came from the blue line and the corners and, you know, there was nothing difficult. And so maybe that's the question you want to ask because that's the way you're watching the game. And I think just maybe my the shortest version of my answer here is we're finally in a place with hockey now where we've got some data about everything. You can talk a bit about goalies. You can talk about defensemen. You can talk about ways that we create offense. We can even talk about prospects and what we should expect from that kid that your team just drafted. And so uh, as long as you're an interested watcher with questions, there's all sorts of different ways to watch the game, right? Or, or to decide that you want to go uh, deeper into the data. And for me, that's my real interest is the thought of, you know, anytime there's new data out there, I want to make pictures for it. Just in case somebody comes along and says, I'm interested in that. I'd like to dig deeper, but I don't know where to start. I, the idea of being maybe a springboard for somebody on that journey really kind of inspires me to, uh, to look for new ways to make, you know, interesting hockey pictures that people can access. Right. Well, you, you mentioned prospects. That's actually something I did want to ask about. Uh, what the difference is um, in evaluating or looking at analytics or um, uh, growth projections of, you know, players before they're drafted versus afterwards? I mean, once a player is in a team system, you know, they could be there for 10, 12 years, whatever it is. But uh, some of these guys, you know, by the time they're 15, you got about three years to collect a whole bunch of data. I'm curious what your take is uh, on on just uh, evaluating and, and what the analytics community looks like even uh, and what kind of resources are out there for looking at prospects and, and seeing uh, how good they're going to be or where they're really at, where they would, um, where they project to grow into. So yeah, I'm curious uh, what you, you, what you think about the, that? I think that's an area where there's certain things that we've done a really good job uh, at gathering data on and doing research on. Um, and prospects and goalies are two places where work is still being done uh, to really get a good sense of what to expect. And I think anytime we're talking prospects across sports, anytime you're talking about, you know, uh, a guy or a girl who's 15 or 16 years old and trying to project what they might be as a 20 year old, um, I'm not sure that it's a frontier that can ever be fully conquered. And, and mm-hmm. that's just, you know, that's life and that's okay. Yeah. Um, for hockey, again, I have something that's been out the past couple of days uh, using data by Emmanuel Perry again, looking at the uh, 
projected chance that a, a player will make the NHL versus the projected war, their projected overall impact uh, were they to make the NHL. And sometimes I think maybe the most important thing that we can do when we're looking at this prospect data is realize what a long shot it really is for every single uh, kid that ever makes a pro league at all. And just how sobering that thought can be when, uh, you know, as a fan of any team, you kind of get connected to that second or third round pick with the kind of interesting name, or it seemed like they scored a point a game in their junior league. You know, this is going to be the next star. And when you look through the data, this Viz, for example, there's over 30,000 players contained in this data set, all non-NHL players, basically, looking for their chance to make it. And we know in any given season, you're going to see about 800 players. Most of those players are players that were already there and have been there for years. And so there's kind of this, um, you know, without getting too far away from the, the data and the viz part of this, there's kind of a sobering moment when you think about it, what an absolute long shot it is for anybody to ever make a pro league and NHL included. And so, you know, using this kind of data where we can say we use comparables, we adjust points based on league strength we know it's you know easier to score in the ohl than it is to score in the ahl we know it's really hard to score in the swedish hockey league it's pretty easy to score in the bc hockey league and as you adjust for all those levels you can use comparables people who have scored at that height and at that weight and at that age before but we take all those sorts of things into account and you can make a projection and what you find is for the most part, no one's going to make it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one's making it out of this uh, alive. Um, I guess the last that I would offer maybe is just as this viz is kind of new to me and I'm still sort of enjoying digging around myself with it. I did some cluster analysis, which grouped all of these 30,000 prospects into four groups. Um, and in the data, sort of the tableau will do this for me where it sort of suggests what the group should be. And so there was a group of uh, players that were basically organizational depth. That means low chance of making it. They're never getting there, less than 1%. That's the majority. You get some that are older players with a slim chance of making it. So that's 10% chance of making it. And they're 22 years old or older. Uh, and that was a big group. There's a group of older players um, that are kind of a lesser chance, maybe 5%. And then the smallest group is the top prospect group. And this is the group of all the names that we recognize, uh, you know, all those Jack Hughes and Capo Caco and all those names that are big names right now. Um, that group on the whole is if you take any player kind of at random, we expect them to make the NHL uh, four times out of 10 and that's it. And we're, that's talking about that top cross the, the top few hundred in this gigantic data set. And so, um, I guess I've kind of come back to the word a couple of times and spun out on this. It's really sobering, I think, anytime you dig too far into prospect data. Um, you know, and I think as a, a parent or anybody listening to this who has kids or designs of pushing your own child through professional sports, it really is important to remember that, you know, basically no one's making it to the pro <laughs> leagues and maybe you need to adjust your thinking accordingly. 
Well, I, I love it because that's actually a topic I really like talking about is the draft, but sort of as the anti-draft, anti-prospect guy, because they, they say if you come out of the draft with two players, uh, you're doing good. Well, there's so many teams that want to rebuild, feel like you could probably move a first round pick and a second to seventh as a package for two players you could use now for, for teams that are competing. So I'm I'm not high on uh, on prospect uh, talk. I'm high on using them as as a uh, commodity to get what you need now at least for a team that's competitive like the jets obviously for for me and for us we kind of keep coming back to the jet stuff all the time which we haven't really even touched on yet but um that, that's great i love that so what what is the viz uh called uh the prospect one the new one uh, this one just i mean a uh, very inspired name it's called prospect data okay. <laughs> so it's on the top row of my viz on my tableau page again it's something you can find if you go through my uh my twitter bio to check out and and like you said, if I can just spring off that really quickly, sure. I do think that that people really do overestimate the quality and the value of their prospects and draft picks in general. And I think there is a really good case, unless you've got one of the top, you know, nine to twelve picks in a draft, if you know that you can exchange your pick for somebody that can play on your team right away and suit a role, you do it because, like you alluded to all the best prospect research that we have says you expect to get one player who will play a hundred NHL games for your team out of every draft. That's it. Basically one out of your seven picks might make it. And it's going to be that first rounder almost every time. And some of that is just the bias of being invested in that person. You drafted with your first pick and you make sure they get their opportunity in a way. Some of the later picks don't. So if you can take a second and a third, and flip that for Nikita Gusev like the Devils just did. You do that every single time because those picks are never going to turn out. You know that it's probably never going to turn into a player for you, and Gusev already is. And so uh, I'm very big, uh, and I think along the same lines as you, in exchanging those picks for known quantities because it's it's just so much more rare than people think. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even if even if you counted a, a draft pick as uh, or a draft getting two players out of it, usually that means in about three or four years. So all you're doing is expediting instead of waiting three or four years, uh, you know, two to three years for the Jets for Heinola or something. Uh, you just you move those picks now and you get uh, a player right now. I mean, there's like you mentioned Gardner too in free agency that you can pick up too, but that's a that's a different story. We're talking trades and 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 picks and moving them. So yeah, that's a that's a fun one, and I'm I'm glad that you're confirming some of uh, what I'm saying. I'm definitely going to cut that piece out and uh, text that to a couple friends. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to help out. Yeah. So now I got a, a question. Now I don't know how much work you've done with this specifically. At least I haven't seen it. But um, when you're how do you evaluate a coach? And if a coach is doing a good job, even like talk about the prospects and and uh, um, a coach wanting to get a certain type of player in. I've always wondered um, what's the best way. Again, I talk about trying to watch hockey the best way. Uh, do you have any uh, maybe insight into how to evaluate if a coach is doing a good job? I mean, um, in Winnipeg, we got Paul Maurice, and uh, I'm not a fan, and everybody who listens to this knows this. But um, I feel like if you gave him a team of 28 year old veterans that are really gritty, he might literally be the best coach in the world for those guys. But uh, yeah, I guess a coach's job isn't to optimize the, the other 30 teams that they're not coaching. It's to optimize the one that they have. So how do we look at coaches and their, their value and, and what they do? I think evaluating coaching uh, data is really, really tricky. Not something that you almost ever see. Uh, we talked about Micah McCurdy just before we got started uh, with the pod, and I know that he's, you know, at times worked with different things that highlight 
impact of a coach or try to isolate that impact of a coach. But it's super, super tricky to ever um, untangle a coach from their team. And so, you know, Paul Maurice is, is an interesting example in a couple of ways. You can look at him and say, what was he like with the Leafs? Now, what was he like with the Jets? And you can look at patterns of deployment. You can see, is this a, a, a coach who routinely gives a high time on ice percentage to older players or younger players? Uh, Mike Babcock in Toronto is one who's notorious for leaning on his veterans, you know, come hell or high water. That's the way he leans. Uh, Paul Maurice, you know, I know that that opinion of him is sometimes out there too, the sort of reliance on those gritty grinder go into the corner type guys, sometimes at the expense of uh, other players that have different kinds of skill sets. Uh, other coaches develop reputations for always running their teams fast, like uh, Bruce Boudreaux, who everywhere he seems to show up, despite the fact that it looks like, you know, he's, he's about to pop a gasket on, at all times behind the bench. His teams routinely play quick and throw lots of shots on net. And we can kind of tell because you can look at a team like the Minnesota Wild pre-Boudreau and post-Boudreau and see that without a lot of the personnel on the team changing, their uh, shot driving patterns have changed. But it winds up being a really difficult situation, a lot like goalies, in that the sample size that we're dealing with at all times with coaches is so, so small. So we're looking at 31, it'll be 32 coaches uh, once we get to Seattle. And it's just not a lot of uh, people to evaluate. And so you're always going to get that kind of random impact of, you know, you add a star player to this team, all of a sudden the coach looks good. You had a great coach at the right time to a different team, and they look good together. And we can't suss out so much of it because there's only so many coaches to even evaluate. And the kind of hashtag 200 hockey men problem persists where you don't even get to see 30 different coaches each year winds up being the sort of same people coming around and coming around and getting every chance uh, all the time. And so uh, I guess I would say if you want to evaluate a coach, you need ones where you've seen them in a couple different locations to see if you can identify kind of pace of play types of things. Uh, other than that, it's really, really murky. And it's a place I hope people smarter than me are able to kind of dig into some data as we get more available maybe to kind of enlighten our, our coaching analysis as we go forward. Well, that's good. I love it. That's great. Um, yeah. Cause I, that's kind of how I felt about it before ever talking to anybody about it. It seemed like a, a voodoo the same way that we talk about uh, goalies, but, but for a different reason, but I guess maybe the best way, like I always talk about optimizing. So again, if uh, you got the guy that can optimize your team the best, then that's the person you go with. So you, you look at maybe their ideas and, and what's out there, but uh, uh, kind of alluding to the style of play that Boudreaux uh, plays, I, sounds like the style that is a bit more of a winning thing now that we know that, you know, you're, whoever has a shot share is going to win more times than the not. I, mean, I, I know I'm oversimplifying a bit, but uh, so a team that kind of does that feels like they probably have the better coach, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think... You know, as you're talking about this and as I'm kind of just, you know, racking my own brain, that is one way where we can look at it, where you can say uh, one thing that uh, Mike Babcock has done well, thinking of him specifically, is he kind of has a reputation as a gritty guy who likes his vets who go into the corners too. But Toronto has played with a tremendous pace of shots uh, ever since he's been there. And, you know, whether or not that's all his doing, it is a recognition that when you've got Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, John Tavares, when you've got this kind of high-end talent, 
you run the pace hard because the only thing stopping you is fluctuations in shooting percentage, but you know you've got the quality shooters and scorers, and so you want to push that pace and get as much on that as possible, and Toronto's done that. And so, you know, to some extent, there is some credit to be given to Babcock for accepting that playing that top pace, kind of like a Boudreaux, does play into the kind of roster that he has, but it really is important to look at deployment and maybe that's our clearest window into coaching right now. We know, and you know, Leafs fans, this is something that was kind of a point of uh, ripping hair out of uh, their heads at the end of the season was the amount of ice time that Patrick Barlow had to say, uh, compare with Austin Matthews in their final playoff game. And so we can look and say, look at the ice time given to 36 year old forwards who clearly (laughs) aren't producing and compare that with Austin Matthews, is this deployment what you really want your coach? And and that's something that a coach is 100% in charge of. And so maybe, you know, that time on ice breakdown is is the best way to dig into kind of the soul of what a a coach is thinking with their team. I I like that you mentioned that that's what the coach is in charge of. It's amazing how much criticism players get and they don't choose their line mates or the schemes or if they're on the power play or uh, their time on ice, they don't choose any of that stuff. It's all comes down to the coach at some point. So um, I hope that the evaluating of them gets uh, better and better because uh, right now it seems a little bit like we talked about earlier, like the, the sort of magical stuff people talk about when it comes to coaches, it's not really concrete. And so uh, definitely looking forward to the day where we can, uh, where I can either be smarter or vindicated <laughs> for, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> for not liking Palmeries. Um, okay. So one, one more question before we get into maybe a couple specific jet things. Um, you, you do have a tool on uh, your, your uh, site there that um, shows different lineups. And I'm curious, uh, maybe if you, you can kind of explain that, that tool when you're coming up with the different lineups, uh, is it specifically a way of optimizing a lineup? Like again, I, I mentioned before, or is it just kind of what you're projecting based on uh, what is two hundred hockey men would kind of do? Like, is it sort of uh, just by patterns, or is it uh, based on trying to uh, again try and find the best the best fit? Right. So uh, a tool that I have that's being used a lot right now, um, which is really neat, is uh, my War Lineup Creator, and that's a Google Sheet. So it's not through Tableau where most of my stuff is. It, it lives on its own in a separate spot. And the idea is that you can go in and choose players for all the different lines, switch up the line combinations, change their time on ice, put in the D pairs, change your starting goalie and how many games they'll play, all that sort of thing. And the lineup creator takes all of that um, and then it pumps out a, a standings point projection. I created it last season during the year using the war data produced by Evolving Wild, by the, the twins at Evolving Wild, who do excellent, excellent work. And the idea was that you could go in and say, you know, something like we touched on Marlowe earlier, Patrick Marlowe's playing you know, uh, 30% of the time on ice right now, like line two minutes, if we dropped him down to line four instead and move somebody up, how would that affect the pace that this team is on in terms of standing points? It's really good for that. Right. Um, in the off season, I updated this with uh, projections in mind. And so that involves a bunch of different steps where all the players in the database, you take kind of a weighted average of their performance over a few years We know about aging curves. Again, Evolving Wild has the best research out there right now on that, on how players, um, you know, proceed and and progress over time. So we take sort of weighted 
data over time. We age all the players one year, move players around onto the different rosters, and then I've been pumping out some projections on where I see teams falling based on the lineups that we know right now. Um, and so the, the tool is really neat. Um, and again, it's kind of in the spirit of the way I like to do things. It's an excellent way to, I think, get a, a talking point started on what the team looks like if you arrange it in a certain way. But war isn't really designed as it stands right now to be a really predictive tool. And I've worked around that in some ways by weighting their stats over time and aging all the players and all that sort of thing. But really it's not meant to be, you know, um, the Bible on how a team is going to perform. So, you know, right now, for example, if you put in some of the best versions of the Jets, they wind up around 93 or 94 points, maybe as an eight seed in the West. And I don't think that's so far off from what the team might actually look like when we roll into the season. They didn't have, you know, a tremendous off season, um, maybe not quite the luster that they had last year overall. And so it might wind up being kind of close, but the idea is more that you create this lineup, you see where they're projected to be, and that's where the argument begins. That's where you can say, yeah, but Patrick Lane is not going to fall flat on his face for half the season the way he did last year. We expect to see more. Or, yeah, uh, you know, Brandon Tannen isn't going to be in the bottom line, and maybe he was really useful last year, but it's actually okay that he's gone because the next guy up is going to be more productive, even more than this projection suggests. And so, uh, you know, for anybody who uses the lineup creator, I hope that they see it in that way as, again, as a way to uh, sort of move around and interact with some of the data and as a conversation starter more than, you know, a definitive last word on how any team will actually be. Right. Now, just out of curiosity, did you by chance go back and kind of plunk in and project like what actually happened with all the teams and project forward and see um, where they they line up like uh, to to what actually happened? Well, and so that's the interesting thing. The way that it was originally designed, um, war is a descriptive stat where you're assigning the credit for the way your team has played to the different players based on their contributions, kind of in short. Right. And so it always kind of lines up in a way because um, while war kind of deconstructs all of the different players' uh, impacts to their level – this kind of re-aggregates it all back up to the team level. And so it's kind of forced in some ways to align with how the team is actually performing, um, right. if that makes sense. Yep. The, the trickier part is when you make everybody one year older and uh, kind of try to project their stats forward based on their past, that's where you start to get that um, wider error bar, that kind of idea of uncertainty projecting into the future. So last year, it really did line up pretty well with how teams were performing, basically because uh, it has to, based on the math behind it. But with the projecting forward, there's all sorts of room for, you know, plus four, minus four points or, or more with any team projection that you do. Well, I said we are going to get into the Jets a little bit. We've kind of talked about them a bit. But I actually did have one more question that wasn't Jets-related. We'll end off with the last uh, 10 minutes or so of uh, Jets stuff. But um, I was going to say, like uh, we mentioned Micah, and uh, Garrett um, Hole has done some stuff before with Jets Nation and uh, does a bunch of work. There's yourself. Uh, Manny's in Montreal. Uh, you mentioned evolving the Evolving Wild Twins. 
Um, I'm just kind of curious what the analytics community and the viz community and, and all this sort of um, combined stuff looks like uh, worldwide because it seems like most of the pioneers or the people on the cutting edge of it right now are mostly in Canada, at least um, per capita wise, it feels that way. Um, but yeah, if you get a sense of uh, what's happening maybe within teams or throughout the States, people that maybe don't have the same notoriety as uh, some of you guys. And uh, and even over in Europe too, if this is like something that's really being accepted. And I know obviously not just your visualizations because I know there's more specific to the NHL, but are there people kind of doing the same stuff and maybe some cross-pollination of ideas? Uh, so... The, the answer is yes, for sure. And I felt really lucky. I've been part of Hockey Graphs for the past few years. And, you know, because of that, I'm kind of connected to some of these people who have been, um, you know, in and out of different jobs with different teams at different times. And, uh, you know, that exposure and that kind of connection and going to the different conferences that we've had uh, throughout the past few years in Ottawa and in Rochester and some different places over time, um, you know, I've been really fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to people that are in this field and doing this work and and uh, get a sort of lay of the land in that way. Like you said, it, there, it's kind of interesting just how centralized it, it was to Canada at first. And there's kind of this funny, not funny joke about how many um, analysts and people doing stats work were from the Ottawa area while Ottawa, you know, completely resisted the idea of getting into analytics at all. And you know, for Micah and for Manny and even myself, we're all kind of uh, in some ways connected to the Ottawa area, not far off from it, and we're not the only ones. Uh, and, you know, the Senators have always kind of been reluctant to really get too far into having a department, even though to some extent, you know, uh, somebody like Micah or somebody like Manny, some of these great minds right in their back door and, you know, fans of the team. And so um, that idea that there's kind of a Canadian concentration is definitely true. There's um, a growing body of researchers in the States, um, which is really exciting to see and, and good to see. And then kind of you mentioned that sort of international presence. Um, the, the leagues in Europe, it's interesting. There seems to be a much more ready acceptance to this kind of advanced data. And I don't know if that, in some ways, I wonder if maybe that's connected to soccer, to football, um, being an early adopter of some of these advanced stats, that it's much easier to sell fans in Europe on the kind of advanced data that is just getting popular in North America. And so I know that the Swiss League and the Swedish League, they publish some of the data we'd love to see on NHL.com. They have it on their league websites right now, like Core C4 percentage, and some of those things that took a while for the NHL site to even adopt their version of it. And so it's definitely out there. But hockey remains kind of a niche sport, um, you know, globally and even in North America to whatever extent. And so the community just isn't that large yet, but it's definitely growing. And it's the kind of thing where I think uh, there's a real duty to anybody or for anybody who's in this world right now to try to be accepting and encouraging. Uh, hockey Graphs has been really good about uh, having a mentorship program where they partner people that are part of hockey graphs with people that are interested in getting involved. And then those two people work together on projects to try to grow the body of research. We're very much still kind of in that phase as a stats community, but it is growing and people seem, you know, by and large willing to try to help each other out to grow the community. So hopefully that's something we continue to see as we go forward. That's good. I like it. Great description. Um, 
I knew I knew you'd have a good answer for that <laughs> being involved in it because uh, as an outsider, just there's lots of just curiosity and questions about who, who the heck are these people and what are they doing and why should I listen to them and but uh, it, it's great that there's like uh, so much collaboration and support for each other in so many ways for the most part. Um, moving on to a little bit of jet stuff. Um, when looking at the jets, what are some key elements that you think could make the jets better? I mean, um, the, the number that you just mentioned when you run it through, and that's kind of what a lot of us were saying, seven to eight seed, um, is another drop off from two years ago when the jets had an amazing run there. Um, and so they just kind of keep getting worse. So what do you, what do you think when you're looking at the data and, and the most valuable, uh, versions of it, you know, not, I mean, salaries probably doesn't, uh, isn't going to be the main main thing, but just uh, players and how they age and, and whatnot. Uh, what's something that can make the Jets uh, a lot better, whether it's uh, specifics or maybe like specific players or if you're uh, certain styles or, or what do they need to really key in on to, to maybe get themselves into third, third in their division or something? Well, I think the Jets are a team that's always been a little bit close to my heart too. And I really loved the original iteration and, and you know, it's a brand new, team with a new history now but it's a team that I always kind of you know in some ways root for too and I I really do think that the Jets were wise to let a couple of the players that walked to let them walk and so you know Tyler Myers uh, in terms of war that wins above replacement score he was an overall negative last year which means uh, having the next call up up from the AHL in his spot would have been an improvement regardless of who that defenseman even is. And so, <laughs> you know, the fact that he was skating top four minutes for this team was hurting the team every time he was out there. And they really dodged a bullet by letting him move on and, and take a contract elsewhere. The team isn't worse off for losing someone like him. The same thing with Tanev, who we kind of mentioned earlier, the deal that he got with Pittsburgh is just, absolutely crazy anytime a team locks down a depth player with such incredible term kind of like the colton sissons deal as well anytime you get yourself locked into your depth players you just handcuff all your future flexibility for promoting young players from within you're stuck with these guys as they go through the deterioration phase of their skills for their career and so i think in some ways although the jets have been quiet as the offseason has gone on it's been good for them because they've dodged a couple of bullets but the question is, how does this team look better? I think Ehlers is part of the story. Uh, the analytics community, by and large, loves everything that he can do. He's a huge offensive producer. He's always on the right side of expected goal share and shot share and all that sort of thing. Uh, he's got all the right skills. And I'm not sure that last year showcased his ability uh, in all the ways that it could. And so you roll him back out there and you count on him converting on the kind of skill that he really does have. I think the same thing is true for Patrick Lonnie, and I know uh, like that situation has had some other elements to it with the contract and, and the fact that he scored so many of his goals all in that one kind of hot stretch of a couple of weeks. He basically, I think he put in more than half of his goal total in a couple of weeks at one point. Yep. But this is a player who uh, has a truly elite shot. I did some digging through shooting talent using Don't Tell Me About Hearts uh, shooting talent formula, and I've got that up on my Tableau page too for people who want to take a look. But, you know, by and large in the league, shooting skill is uh, either over or underrated. We assume that players who scored last year are going to score again next year. If you've never scored before, you'll never score again in this league. But shooting percentage is really, um, it's kind of wacky over time. It's got a lot of random going on to it. 
you hit a post, you get your shots on a hot goalie some night or, or whatever. There's a lot of things that play into it. Patrick Lonnie is one of those players who has a legitimate top-end shot, uh, sort of a top maybe 20, top 15 shot in the league. And that's the kind of skill that you just don't go pick up uh, you know, in free agency, you just don't find players like that around. And so what do you do with a player who was kind of up and down last year, to maybe put it mildly? You run that player back out, and you trust that over time, his skill is really going to win the day, and it will with a player with that kind of elite talent. When I look at the roster projection that I, I have for them, I do see them sneaking in at the bottom of the West in a best case scenario. So a couple things have to go right. Shifley has to continue to be Shifley, which is one of the underrated best players in the entire game. Uh, we need a great season from Kyle Connor. We need Matthew Perot to be a positive contributor in the bottom six somewhere, or maybe even having to play up, depending. I have Christian Veselainen making the roster and playing some minutes and being a positive contributor. That's based on his projection over time, which is, I think, fair to a player with a lot of skill. I think Josh Morrissey and, and Bufflin make for a totally uh, strong top pair. Um, right now, based on Cat Friendly's rosters, I have Kulikov taking minutes in the top four. That's death. And if they can get him out of there uh, and play somebody else in those minutes, that would do them a lot of good. And then it's interesting. I was a big fan of Connor Hellebuck. Uh, especially as he was coming up and had a lot of uh, sort of positive scouting reports as he was leading into being drafted. Last year, he was just okay. And when we look at goals saved uh, versus the kind of shot quality that a, a goalie has faced, we call it goals saved above expectation, he was just kind of a break-even goalie. He kind of stopped what he should, and he didn't go above and beyond, and he wasn't worse than that either. He was kind of around an average goalie which is fine, but I think it's a little bit less than what people think of him based on some of the, the name value he's managed to build up. But then Laurent Brassat was just incredible uh, as his backup. And so I think maybe a best-case scenario for the Jets is um, maybe something more like a 60-40 timeshare and, and really you know, seeing if Brassat can be a competent backup again and maybe give Hellebuck some of the extra rest that more and more teams are starting to see is valuable for goaltenders. Rask and Halak are a great example of how extra rest for your starter can be really important for your starter when you get into a playoff run. Rask looked like he was going to win the con Smythe that the Bruins had won the Cup last year. And so maybe these two need to work more in a kind of 60-40 tandem this year too to you know kind of allow Hellebuck to be ready when the playoffs roll around. What? This this is great. Like I really love some of the the players that you're mentioning and things you're keying in on because uh, they feel really true, especially when it's coming from someone like yourself. That's a, a neutral source because um, there there's lots of debate. I mean, you're you're not in you know quote unquote Jets Twitter and whatnot, so you don't see the people arguing over the value of a, a Tanev or a Myers. But uh, I think the biggest thing kind of hampering the Jets would probably be the loss of Truba. Right, and that's that's a hard hard one to replace. I'm wondering if you could just kind of speak to what the value of of Truba is and and uh, his absence for for the Jets because uh, I think he's uh, because he wanted to leave or seemed to want to leave and whatnot. Um, a lot of fans didn't like him, so then the narrative becomes that he wasn't actually that good. I'm wondering if you can uh, talk about him for a second and see if uh, you could shed some truth, even if uh, even if I'm on the wrong side of it. I'm okay with that. I just want to know. 
Yeah, so, you know, I tiptoed around the Truba thing, and it's kind of a touchy subject, and I almost got away with it. So, no, no. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> not going to let me off on that one. So uh, Truba is not a number one. If you look at yeah, sort of wins above replacement value overall, uh, in, in some of his work in terms of controlling the quality of shots, he's a top 40 defenseman probably in the league right now not higher than that and so that makes it maybe a fringy number one defenseman but definitely a number two and when you look at the projected sort of defense pairs for the Jets I have it right now again using cap friendly I have it as Morrissey with Bufflin, Kulikov with Pionk and Beaulieu with Niku uh, if that's the way the, the top six breaks down or something like it then you can see the obvious need for somebody of Truba's magnitude and like you said, you know, I, I don't think the Jets had a whole lot of option uh, in this situation. It looked like Truba wanted to go. The contract he signed was probably a million dollars per year richer than you want it to be, uh, richer than it might be, was projected to be based on what he contributes. But when you're talking about a top 40 defenseman, maybe you don't mind paying the premium to keep a guy like that around. And so what's the positive spin for Jets? I think the top six as it's constructed, I don't love it. I think that there's too many question marks. Uh, like Pionk, you know, there's a lot of reason to be concerned that he's even an NHL defenseman at all. Kulikov definitely is not anymore at all an NHL defenseman. And so can they go in, can the Jets, you know, sort of scour the market and get lucky and find somebody who's uh, hanging around still and fit them under the cap? I'm a huge, huge, huge Gardner proponent for all the things that he brings to a team. I don't know if his contract ask is too rich for them to figure something out. The other name out there right now, because of the bio, is Kevin Shattenkirk. Uh, you know, his profile is not blemish-free. But when you look at this top six, he would be an improvement over at least three of the defensemen that I project them to run out there. And because he's on a buyout, he might be willing to come in cheap too. So I think, you know, uh, Truba is a definite loss, at least a number two NHL wide and on this team, probably a number two as well. And they need to find something to replace some depth because they have at least three question marks out of the top six. And, and that's too many questions for a team that, you know, kind of has their eyes on another playoff run. Yeah. It's kind of wasting away some, some of Blake Wheeler's best years and Bufflin's, you know, sort of where we can get good value out of Wheeler and Little and Bufflin and some of those older guys too, while we kind of wait for the D to get fixed. Uh, okay. Two, two last questions. Um, one was uh, with teams that have sustained, I'm actually reading it uh, verbatim here, uh, that I wrote down, teams that had sustained success like Chicago and L.A. and uh, Pittsburgh when they all kind of won a few cups uh, in a row or around each other. Um, what were some of the, the key factors for them being so good? I've heard people argue that, uh, you know, Pittsburgh in the playoffs a couple of years ago, their course he wasn't that good. So, I mean, overall, uh, what's uh, what's some of the, the main things that make up uh, a strong team as far as uh, whether it's player makeup, like having at least, uh, you mentioned Truba being, you know, a solid number two. Do you have to have at least a three plus, you know, two or equivalent and higher defensemen, uh, as well as, you know, uh, three elite shooters plus a goaltender that's uh, slightly above average and then take more shots than the other team? Like, uh, I, I guess, yeah, what goes into making some of these teams good? What's What's the main patterns you see? I guess, so I'm trying to think of an answer that doesn't get too uh, mystic about it. Um, I guess one thing that we know is that hockey is a strong link game, and that means the team that has the best players wins. And that sounds like it's not saying much, but it's uh, 
it actually says something really profound. So soccer is the opposite, where it's a weak link sport. The team that wins is the team that doesn't have the worst players. And that's because everybody in soccer uh, handles the ball much more than on in other sports. Basketball is the perfect example of the most strong link game. If you have LeBron James on your team at his peak, it almost doesn't matter who you surround him with because he's so impactful. He can play so much of the game. He can have the ball in his hands, every possession, and that matters. And so hockey is actually more like basketball than it is like soccer, interestingly. And so the, the reason that that connects is when you describe those teams like Chicago or Pittsburgh, who uh, you know had their runs or had their small mini dynasties, you can think of a couple of players that they had on their team playing on separate lines that made sure that they had the best player on the ice all the time when those players were out. If you start off with your team with Crosby and Malkin, then that means that at least half the game, more than half the game, maybe 60% of the game, you have the best player on the ice, whether it's Crosby or Malkin. And that matters in hockey so much that it means you can almost get away with question marks on your wings you can almost get away with question marks on your defense because if Denny Malkin or Sidney Crosby tilts the ice in your direction so much Chicago is the same you know with with Taves and Kane and, and how they broke things down uh Duncan Keith at the time was also the kind of player who was playing you know half the game more than half the game and was that impactful uh and so you know that's what you look for first with a team that's going to be really competitive and win. Right now, I'm not sure that the Jets can say they go two or three stars deep. Shifley is that kind of a player where when he's on the ice, he's probably the best player on the ice. Once you get past him, I'm not sure how often the answer is, yes, the Jets have the best player on the ice. Uh, Patrick Laudy may or may not ever elevate himself to that level, or he might just be one of those, you know, sort of pure finishers who always needs to be paired with somebody else who's impactful. Uh, Wheeler uh, is a really strong player, but at his age and at this stage in his career, he's probably not the best player on the ice all the time when he's out there. Shifley is, and sometimes Bufflin can be that kind of a player too, the kind of guy who can have the puck on his stick and really control the ebb and flow of the game. So Winnipeg's kind of right on the cusp of maybe having that, but not clearly so. Uh, but that's important, having the strongest links you can possibly have. The second thing that you have to have is goaltending. And that's by far the hardest one to predict. When we look at goaltending stats year over year and try to find things that repeat uh, reliably, it's really, really tough to do. And so when you look at Hellebuck and Brassois, you know, Brassois was great last year. Hellebuck was just average. And that might totally be a completely different story this year. And if it is, if they get something like a Robin Leonard kind of performance out of one of these two, all of a sudden, this team is a Stanley Cup finalist instead of an also-ran in the West. And predicting that is really, really difficult to do, again, because the goalie sample size is just so small. And so uh, I think Hellebuck has the pedigree that he might be one of those kind of letter-level impactful goalies, maybe. If that happens, then this team runs to the finals in the West, probably. Uh, and then I guess the other thing, that I would say, and this one's no fun to hear, but as a kind of stats-oriented person, I have to say it, luck is just such a huge part of this game, whether we like it or are willing to acknowledge it or not. If the Jets go on uh, kind of a wild shooting percentage binge, something like what the Washington Capitals have managed to do over the past couple of seasons, 
you know, that cancels out all sorts of sins. And so this, this team will look fantastic and it might not even be something that they're necessarily controlling themselves, but it can happen. And, you know, when you've got a bunch of quality shooters, like they do, they have quite a number of uh, really talented snipers like Shifley, Lana, Ehlers, Connor. Uh, it goes really deep with quality shooters. If the Jets kind of go on one of those PDO binges where they're shooting percentage spikes and they put down a bunch of wins altogether, again, it could be the story of, uh, you know, one season versus another for them. So uh, I guess that's my short answer. My long answer is a couple of strong links, uh, huge performance from your goalie, and then having luck on your side. Those tend to be the the big elements in a successful season. That sounds like a good argument for spreading out your talent a, a little bit more than the Jets maybe have, especially with Wheeler getting 91 points the last two years. A lot of people have been saying, uh, even on the podcast here, that we should have split up Wheeler and Shifley to try and move the talent around to try and get that strong link per, per line in, in our defense. So uh, I guess we'll see what the Jets do. So I'm going to ask you one question. It's a little bit vanilla. Uh, last one, and then don't bother throwing back to me. Maybe after that you could just kind of plug um, where people can find all your work, and we'll just kind of wrap it up. We're a little bit over an hour now, and I feel terrible. So um, I was going to ask you uh, the most underrated and uh, undervalued uh, Jets players, uh, maybe one or two of them that maybe you see some value in there that people don't usually across the league. I know you mentioned Shifley as far as uh, being one of the best players in the league. Uh, so maybe that might be one of your examples you want to use. But yeah, an, an undervalued um, uh, Jets player that people should look look to a bit more. Right. And so I mentioned Shifley earlier, uh, and that one's kind of, uh, it's a little bit of a cheap answer in a way because everybody recognizes that he's great, but I think he's, you know, truly top 10 impactful. And I'm not sure if he always gets that kind of credit around the league. I guess if I was going to shout out somebody else, uh, Nathan Beaulieu's uh, minutes last year were super productive, very positive impact overall. Uh, he kind of got ran out of Buffalo for whatever the reasons were there. And I'm not sure that he's the kind of player that you look at and say, oh, we've solved our defensive issues. We just needed to play Beaulieu 30 minutes a night. But mm-hmm. this is a player whose stats last year were really, really positive, And I don't think that he was able to secure uh, the kind of regular role that he needed to showcase it. And so, you know, if you're looking for kind of a diamond in the rough that might be on the roster right now, I'd be just sort of interested to see if, you know, run him in the top four instead of maybe a Kulikov or a Pionk if you can. And maybe he solidifies some of the need that's clearly there in the in the defense pairs. So he might be my other kind of dark horse as somebody who maybe has more value than people think. Uh, and then I guess, so if I'm throwing straight to myself for uh, things to plug, uh, I mentioned before that uh, I have the link to my Tableau page in my Twitter profile. So if you go to at charting hockey, you can go straight to my Tableau page and go digging through, uh, you know, the sort of 2000 charts that are there. And there's a, about a dozen that are kind of current things to look at. And then I have links to all the other things like game predictions, the lineup creator, a trade machine and all that stuff is in my pinned tweet at the top. And so you can, you know, take a look through there and, and just tweet at me if you're using something of mine and you're not sure how to use it. I'm always around to uh, answer questions and try to help out. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Sean. I hope that uh, you you enjoyed it. I definitely liked uh, listening to it and, uh, well, not listening, well, chatting with you. And I'm sure a lot of people enjoy listening to this. So thanks so much for taking the time and uh, edumacating us uh, Jets fans. <laughs> thanks for having me on. I'm glad we were able to uh, make the time. Thanks for it. Yeah, not a problem. I'm Kurt Kielbach, and thank you for listening to the Jet Centric Broadcast.